Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm with Zach Davis. And it's 3.15 here in New York, but it is 9.15 in Rome, which is why I've got a nice drink with me. Uh, not, that that needed, not that I needed, not that I've never needed a reason to drink before five o'clock on this podcast, yeah. but... How's your transition back to the real world gone rough. since Italy? Uh, should have stayed. Should yeah. have stayed on pilgrimage. No, I mean, anyone who's done a retreat or a pilgrimage knows how hard it is to kind of is the people on the Kairos retreat say hashtag live the fourth, mm-hmm. but like kind of ease back into real life and remember that, you know, we've got to try to carry on the graces that we found in pilgrimage. Yeah. Into... Four days of rain in a row hasn't helped. No, no. It's really <laughs> I, I miss the Tuscan Hills. <laughs> yeah. But we've got a really exciting show coming up this week. Yes. This week we are talking to one of the co-founders of the Dominican Bluegrass group Hillbilly Thomas, Father Thomas Joseph White. He is also the rector of the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, known as the Angelicum in Rome. That, that's his day job. Yeah, <laughs> but on the side, he makes amazing bluegrass music with uh, seven of his brother Dominicans. Yeah. So maybe you've heard of the St. Louis Jesuits, you know, people that wrote some of those songs that make us cry at our grandmother's funerals. But a lot of people wrote in and were really excited to bring the Hillbilly Thomas onto the show. So I'm glad we could finally make it happen. Also, I'm pretty sure it's the first Dominican we've had on the show. Someone write in and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's pretty sad after five years that, you know, people say there's not a rivalry between Jesuits and Dominicans, but we're not doing anything to uh, dispel that myth. No, but it was a great joy to have Father White on, and he gave us a great drink recommendation. That's right. We, uh, to fit in with the Bluegrass Kentucky thing, we are drinking a bourbon-based cocktail called the High Screamer, which is... Two parts bourbon, uh, one part control, and then you've got some uh, lime juice and simple syrup in there, too. Yes, uh, and apparently this is the drink of the Hillbilly Thomas. So. Yes, you heard it here. So cheers. <laughs> cheers. But before we talk to Father White, we have Signs of the Times, and we're going to bring on our colleague, Michael O'Loughlin, the national correspondent here at America, to talk about a report he did on the state of campus ministry in the United States. Yeah, with a particular focus on some recent happenings at the Ohio State University, which is uh, in my hometown. So I'm really excited to talk to Mike about that. And then later, we're going to be doing As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about spiritual things going on in our life. And we're going to be picking up on uh, Pope Francis's weekly audience. He's been talking about discernment and Ignatian spirituality, and that is particularly relevant to this show. And so we're going to be getting into why it's so hard to know ourselves, even just as hard as it is to know God sometimes, he might suggest. Yes. So stick around for all of that. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. So, Zach, I think of fall as prime hiking weather. Do you like to hike? You know, I have the same relationship to hiking as I do to writing, which is that I always say I love having written 
I hate writing. And I feel similarly about hikes. I love the vistas, the feeling of accomplishment, but I'm not one for exercise personally. And so the actual hiking is, is really a slog for me. All right. Then you are going to love Wondrium's brand new program called America's Great Trails. It takes you through six of the greatest hikes you can do in America from the comfort of your iPhone or laptop. Yeah, I, I really appreciated this because, I don't know, you think that all of the all of the hikes are located in like one region. And it's true, the West Coast does have an, a, a lot of great hikes. But we've got some stuff on the East Coast here too. And it's really, I mean, America has a ton of top tier hikes that you can go on. And the best part about this program is, is that we're taken through all of them. We see the wildlife up close, all the flowers, all the views. Well, uh, I can stream this on my phone, on my Roku. I don't have to leave my couch. Yes. Big fan. <laughs> and Wondrium has thousands of hours of trusted information that you won't get anywhere else, all from the brightest minds in their fields. Plus, on the Wondrium app, it's so easy to pick a program, watch or listen on any device, anytime, anywhere. Yep. And we know you'll love Wondrium as much as we do. So what are you waiting for? Sign up today. And we have great news. Wondrium is offering Jesuitical listeners 50% off their first three months. That's a great deal, and you're not going to find it anywhere else. But you have to go to our special URL to get it. Yes, that is wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What are we doing this week, Zach? So this is a story that is very close to my hometown at The Ohio State University um, that a lot of my family and friends were asking me about. I didn't know a lot about it, but was very happy to tell them that my friend and colleague, Michael Lachlan, was all over the story. And so we're pleased to welcome back to the show, Michael Lachlan, joining us from Chicago. Welcome back, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right. So to set the stage just a little bit. So shortly after being installed as the new Bishop of Columbus, uh, Bishop Earl Fernandez announced that the Paulus, this is a religious order, who had been ministering to students at The Ohio State University for six decades, would no longer staff the campus's Newman Center. This came as a, a shock, it sounds like. Mike, where did this come from? It's For a lot of people that asked me about it, it seemed like it was coming out of nowhere. What was behind the bishop's decision making? It did come as a shock. Uh, I think to the community that had been at the Newman Center at Ohio State for a number of years, by all accounts, it was a vibrant, thriving community. It was charged with serving the students and faculty and staff of Ohio State, but also the wider community around campus. And there had been some tension, I think, how do you serve a community versus how do you serve students? People are at different points in their lives. They require different kinds of ministry, different kinds of programming options in addition to mass and other sacraments. So there was a sense, I think, that the bishop wanted the Newman Center to focus primarily on students, on undergrads in particular, and not on the wider community. And he apparently thought that the polis, even if they had done a good job uh, reaching out to the community that maybe they weren't as focused on the undergrad community as they could be. Uh, that's what the official line was from the diocese. Uh, some of the community members thought that because the Newman Center had a reputation for being uh, a little bit more progressive, uh, both liturgically and politically, and that maybe the bishop's background was a little bit more conservative, that maybe there was some tension there about what the parish should look like and what they should focus on. So there was some disagreement about what the true motives were. But regardless, 
over the summer, the transition happened. The polis who had been there for several decades left and a diocesan priest who had worked in the chancery was installed as pastor. And just for listeners who maybe did not go to a university with a Newman Center, what, what exactly is that? Yeah, I'm one of those listeners who did not go to a university with a Newman Center. So it's basically the campus ministry center for the campus community. So you you mentioned that the that the new bishop really wanted to focus on students. And one of the trends that you pick up on in your piece that's not unique to Ohio State is that he got the sense that young people were looking for more traditional forms of worship and devotion. So so how did that play into the decision in, at Ohio State? Yeah, this was one of those pieces where I kind of went into it thinking I would find one story. And then as I kind of dug around, did more research, a different story emerged. Uh, so I assumed I went in and it was a difficult transition. Those are things that happen in parishes all across the country whenever uh, new leadership comes in. That's not unusual beloved uh, pastors move on and new people come in, there might be a clash of ideas or vision. And that's certainly an element here at the Newman Center at Ohio State. But there was also this um, notion that younger Catholics at campus ministry centers across the country are interested in traditional worship styles that maybe had gone out of favor with uh, earlier generations. So uh, having access to confession on a daily basis, uh, adoration, higher forms of liturgy, maybe different kinds of music than had been popular the last couple of decades. And I talked to campus ministers at large uh, schools around the country, University of Connecticut, University of Wisconsin, uh, who were telling me the same thing, that they did have this tension between a style of liturgy and a style of parish that kind of the older generation liked and was used to and was vibrant and thriving, but it didn't always mesh well with what younger people wanted. And there was this tension, how do we figure out how to serve both communities uh, with limited resources and limited time? Yeah. I mean, I know from my own experience, and I've seen this at other colleges too, is oftentimes the young people are viewed very suspiciously. Like there's a sense that they have like ulterior motives that um, because they're attracted to certain forms of devotions, like Eucharistic adoration, it implies a whole host of other political ideologies and affiliations. And I remember being one of those young people just being like, I, I don't know, these are the things that like are the the most identifiably Catholic that I can do. And I'm in an environment that is, we'll say secular, right? And so when you go to Catholic campus ministry, you want to, I don't know, feel as Catholic as possible. And that's like a very simplified way of putting it. But at least that's how I felt back in the day. And I remember there were some looks and some questions that I got either from people in campus ministry or some older members in the community that I was trying to, I'll say, hijack their parish, <laughs> even though it is maybe a campus ministry. Yeah. It, it's meant for students. And so who's really like needs are being served there. But I can imagine that this is really come to a fore in a lot of places. Well, and it's also there's a financial aspect to it because so <laughs> you, oh, yeah. you as a college student, I, I'm guessing we're not giving much to the collection basket. Just, you just have, the tuition basket. <laughs> yeah. And and you have these permanent residents who are older and who have been going to this parish for decades. And so they feel some some degree of ownership and maybe possessiveness. So what did what did you learn about that, Mike? You're exactly right. Uh, so some of the community members I spoke to said that they felt hurt by the bishops uh implication or implying that um, they weren't the target audience because they had been funding a lot of the programming that was aimed at undergrads. I mean, the permanent community were the ones with jobs and careers and extra mm -hmm. income to help underwrite a lot of this programming. I will say the diocese did not grant an interview. They didn't respond to our request for comment. We did talk to the polists and they said that they had seen similar things where the younger generation was interested in these more traditional styles of worship. And they responded. They said that they installed kneelers. They hadn't had kneelers before. They offered confession and adoration more regularly. But the 
community, the wider community, they did get a sense that I think they had been there a while and they had been kind of setting the, the tone of the environment. And while they were willing to work with uh, younger uh, people who had different interests, I think the overall tone of the center had not changed in uh, several years. And maybe the bishop wanted a more dramatic transformation more quickly. What do you think this says about more broadly campus ministry in the United States? I think through my reporting, I've seen that younger people do tend to skew, younger Catholics do tend to skew toward being fulfilled spiritually through these more traditional practices. And I think, Zach, you mentioned earlier that there is a sense among people, uh, especially older people who aren't into that, that it does signify some kind of ideological worldview, which might be true. Uh, There's certainly um, an attraction to things like the Latin mass, where people tend to skew more politically conservative. Uh, But I don't know that, uh, based on my interviews with campus ministers, that you can paint with that broad a brush just because a student's interested in adoration doesn't necessarily mean he or she is uh, politically conservative as well. And I think that's what campus ministers are trying to figure out. How do we fulfill these requests for different spiritual needs while not alienating anyone because of political beliefs? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your reporting. The piece is Who Owns the Newman Center? Shakeup at Ohio State highlights the tension between students and older parishioners. And you can find that at americamagazine.org, and we will link to it in our show notes. Thanks so much, Mike. Thank you. And now stick around for our conversation with Father Thomas Joseph White. Joining us from Rome is Father Thomas Joseph White. Father White is the rector of the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome and one of the founding members of the Hillbilly Thomas, a Dominican bluegrass group. Welcome to Jesuitical, Father White. Thanks so much. It's great to be here, Ashley. And it's so funny because despite having done this podcast for five years and over 200 episodes, I'm pretty certain that you are our first Dominican guest, which feels people like to say there's no rivalry between the Dominicans (laughs) and the Jesuits. And I guess we're not doing anything to help that myth until now, until now. (laughs) But since we have you on here, you know, we know that St. Dominic is someone that inspired St. Ignatius. But could you briefly give us and our audience maybe just like a a quick intro to who he was and an intro to the order that he founded? Yeah, well, St. Dominic was a contemporary of St. Francis. So you have to place him in the early 13th century. He was a Spaniard. And he was uh, a canon regular, according to the Augustinian rule in northern Spain, but traveling through southwestern France with a bishop who he was on a mission with, he encountered the, um, what we could call the Cathar heresy, which was a new, a new Gnostic medieval uh, idea that um, the physical world is evil in some way because it's a place of suffering and physical life in the body is a, in some way you know, deeply problematic. So it must have been created by an inferior or an evil principle. And we're ultimately meant to be liberated to a spirit, spiritual life that's purely spiritual. And so he preached, you know, in response to this, the gospel in emphasizing the embodied life of the Christian, the mysteries of the incarnation, human life, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, and the mysteries of the Virgin Mary. And then he ended up founding an order dedicated to, to learning, to teaching, and to evangelization, as well as missionary work that spread like a kind of wildfire at the time. And they went to universities, they founded lots of priories next door to universities and got involved in medieval theology teaching. And the most famous of them is Thomas Aquinas, who of course was one of the great lights of medieval uh, theology. The end of your your name is OP, which is Order of Preachers, right? And so yeah. Catholics aren't really known for 
being good at preaching, I would say, unfortunately. But Dominicans are. So I'm curious, what's the order's secret that the rest of us are, are not getting? I think in the Dominican order, some people will talk about the uh, tradition of what we would call doctrinal preaching, which is like trying to explain the faith to people to help people gaze onto what God has revealed to us. Uh, you might say what has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and in the mystery of the Trinity, in the mystery of the sacraments, so that the Christian faith doesn't just seem like a purely emotional or moral or affective decision, but it's really something that registers with the life of the mind that, you know, engaging with Christianity is trying to understand the world and trying to understand how to be a better human being, how to love God more deeply, how to know God so we can love God, how to know human beings so we can love human beings. So this idea of kind of knowledge leading love and doctrinal preaching leading conversion of heart is at the heart of the Dominican charism and way of life. Hmm. So that makes a lot of sense to me. I went to a college where the Dominicans were the priests who who were serving or celebrating at our chapel and the parish community there. And it was a time in my life where I was encountering the faith in an intellectual way for the first time. Um, and the Dominicans there were definitely a part of that. So is there is there something in the formation or the communal life that that supports the the level of preaching that they bring to mass for for students like me back in the day. Yeah, I mean for sure because the life is uh, more communal uh, in the, than some modern orders because the brothers live a quasi monastic life of praying together uh, five times a day and having common prayer and meditation, praying the rosary. So there's a kind of monastic basis you could say, but unlike uh, Benedictines or Cistercians who typically take a promise of stability and live in the same monastery. The friars can, you know, they can and do go out and they have apostolic uh, endeavors and missionary projects. So I guess, would you agree with the premise that it's that good preaching is probably broken in a large swath of, we'll, we'll just limit it to the American church right now. Agree, agree wholeheartedly, disagree wholeheartedly, somewhere in the middle. Um, I've been involved in, in formation in uh, either Dominican uh, seminaries or now diocesan work uh, for my, in most of my adult career. So I'm a little sensitive about, you know, just making whole cloth criticisms, but I do think there are huge challenges and there are real limitations in a lot of American preaching. And it's hard to say exactly why. I think some of it has to do with intellectual formation. Some of it has to do with the understanding of what preaching does within the context of a liturgical act. You're not just catechizing. You're certainly not giving a little moral teaching about how to live or be more patient or tolerant or something banal like that. You're really trying to introduce people into a deeper reverence for God and understanding of God. I mean, how does a person encounter the living voice of God in the scriptures, in the context of liturgy, and be instructed, and have a concrete proposal so they can move forward in their life with uh, a deeper spiritual intentionality? And all those things need to happen in a good homily, and they need to be connected to the second part of the Mass, which is Eucharistic, contemplative, and prayerful. So, you know, certain kinds of overly familiar humorous or jocular familiarity don't help, especially if there are ways the priest is actually trying to overcome his insecurity about being a public speaker and not being sufficiently prepared. You know, so it's hard to be a good preacher and it, and it isn't something we should presuppose everyone can do. Pope Francis has said that homilies should never be more than 10 minutes. Do you think that's a good rule? You, you listed a lot of things that a homily has to do. Can that be achieved in 10 minutes? Uh, you can do all that. In, you can do all that in five minutes. You can do that in 10 minutes. But that statement can be taken in, in, in a good way, you know, saying like we need to be careful about taking the congregation hostage for Father's, you know, personal um, 
Hearing about his last vacation. Well, I hope it wouldn't be that. But I was even going to say <laughs> even his like personal project of, of teaching because the larger setting is the transcendently oriented worship of God. And, uh, you know, the, the reverence of the mass and sacred music and kind of silence and prayer need to be around the homily and not be compromised by the homily. I have listened to 20-minute homilies by Dominicans that I found mesmerizing on solemnities and feast days where I've not been able to stop paying attention and they've changed my life. So I think a really high and very eloquent preacher can, in the right circumstances, c- communicate a longer homily. But I would not tend to think that that's a correct in a in a parish setting. The other problem, let's just be frank, it used to be that the faith was transmitted by families or by schools, by sisters' congregations, by uh, religious or universities. That's not happening now. When does the priest communicate the faith? Right. He does need to do some of it on Sunday during the homily. And you know, we have to be fair. If, if no one else is going to communicate the faith, then he does have an obligation to try to do it. And so that's a big challenge too, you know, to find that balance. Now, I want to pivot a little bit from preaching from the pulpit to maybe preaching behind a record label. People have said that the, the songs that you guys, the Hibbley Thomas put out could be homilies. Do you see the music functioning in that way? Do you Do you see it having some kind of lifting up of the intellectual life, of the spiritual life of the church? I don't want to de-emphasize the potential Catholic nature of the music, but I don't think that's quite the right category. I do think that it's true that as people who are used to communicating, when we write songs together and play together, there's definitely a a spiritual element and a Dominican element. And so there's a communication element. But, you know, playing folk music that's technical and interesting, or at least that's what we try to do, and somewhat, you know, fun, uh, sometimes more beautiful and moving, sometimes more humorous, and sometimes very, I hope, a little profound, but, you know, basically a kind of a, a bluegrass Americana folk music feel. You know, that's that's a different category of life than being in mass. That's like other way, another way of being Catholic. Like part of life is having stuff to listen to in the car, play for the kids, sing music to sing to. It's stuff you play at night and around the fire when you're maybe, you know, drinking a, a something with friends, um, having a relaxed conversation. That's also part of ordinary Catholic life. So, so what is the hillbilly culture that constitutes the first part of your your band's name and coming from Appalachia and bluegrass music that it's not originally Catholic in in from my understanding. So can you give a little of the history of where that where that music comes from? And and why and why you guys wanted to I Yeah, know, because all this talk genre. of like intellectual rigor is hillbilly is not used as a compliment often in the United States and it certainly doesn't connote the same thing as as yeah, but maybe sometimes a hillbilly sees clearer, you know. I mean, sometimes, as Flannery O'Connor notes, people with less learning are less ideologically confused. And John Henry Newman also noted that point. So I wouldn't say that always just because people have a certain education level that they're uh, more profound in their vision or understanding. Anyway, yeah, look, I mean, um, bluegrass music uh, developed in the 40s as a mixture of Scotch, Irish fiddle music and blues music. It's about religion. It's got humorous songs about unrequited love. It's got serious songs about unrequited love. It's got songs about death and mortality, trust in God's providence, uh, loss, humor, evading the police, getting caught by the police. Um, You know, there's a lot of ordinary, colorful, and also just kind of like humorous song uh, themes. And some of it's religious. And so it's interesting to go back and like um, in this kind of age of roots music recovery, which is definitely happening, partly thanks to online services like Spotify, which do make a lot of music available. So you've got this recovery roots music. It's fun as Catholics to go back and appropriate a lot of that religious music 
but in a Catholic key, and then not only play some of it, but also write Catholic versions of it as uh, priests who can, in a way, understand that older, more you know, traditional Protestant uh, religious music, but then you know, put it into a new idiom as Catholic priests. And of course, you know, behind this is also Flannery O'Connor's famous statement that, as she said in one of her letters, people think I'm a hillbilly nihilist, but I'm actually a hillbilly Thomist. So since we're Thomists, or at least you know, from the same religious order as St. Thomas Aquinas, it makes sense to use that Catholic Southern author, Flannery O'Connor, and she wrote deep things in a country idiom. How can we say deep things in uh, modern bluegrass or modern American folk music idiom? That's kind of, I think, the set of ideas and symbols, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I love Flannery, and I love that you guys have sort of taken her as, like, you've gotten your name from her letter. I, I, I've noticed some allusions in some of the lyrics to some of Flannery's work. Um, but she's someone who is a Catholic writer, a woman writer, you know, writing in the very Protestant South um, and sort of taking the like genre of, you know, Southern Gothic and appropriating it for Catholic themes. And I feel like, I guess I don't know enough about bluegrass music and its history and sort of its setting, but it feels like you, you guys are at least trying to do a similar thing, right? Where you've got this, like you're, you're taking a Catholic key to a genre that maybe has traditionally not always been that way. Yeah, I like that analogy. I think that's right. Yeah. What has the response been from the not Catholic bluegrass community to because you use the word appropriate, which is often used as a as a negative term. I think unfairly, a lot of yeah. great things have come from appropriation. Um, well, it might be so, appropriate. So... <laughs> it might be appropriate <laughs> yeah. in some instances. Um, yeah. It's got a nice Latin root that's very flexible. So, <laughs> I, I think a lot of bluegrass people. Uh, like it, uh, who are not um, Catholic. I mean, I'm sure I, I know among in the professional bluegrass world, you know, we we might be ranked as not the most technical. However, I did notice when we were recording in Nashville for like uh, a radio show in Nashville where they this summer where they do have a lot of super technical, highest level, highest level people playing the studio musicians who were Protestant were super enthusiastic. They loved it. Um, and I think that they love the Catholic strangeness of it also because it's a different way of expressing religious ideas. It's maybe slightly less to their mind, moralistic and less artificial and more um, holistic and, and more and more humorous. I don't know. Our biggest fan group is children under the age of reason. We have a huge following <laughs> among like six year olds and younger. Uh, I'm, I'm serious. Like kids, uh, like That's little amazing. kids love the band to the point where parents write us fan mail and say, I love your band, but for God's sake, please make another album. I, my kid has made me listen to your second album 2,000 <laughs> times, literally. I'm not exaggerating. Please, for God's sake, make me another album so I can listen to something else. You know, and uh, when we toured, we found there's like a like a kind of cult following of Catholic homeschool families. I think that mm -hmm. the kids like it. Well, they seem to, a lot of little kids really like it. Some 12-year-olds some like it. But then the parents can agree that it's more interesting than listening to a lot of um official children's music, you know. Baby Shark. Yep. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think it? It is a hit with the six. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's wholesome enough. The parents will let them listen to it, and then they experience real music. Uh, I, mean, I, I think it's it's not commercial and it's not prefabricated. It's grainy. There's a kind of um, there is a kind of complexity to it. So rhythm yeah. you can dance like to that, to yeah. it also. And I yeah, definitely a lot like of it that. moves. You know, they like the speed. You know, it's it's hard to find. You know, one thing is a lot of fast music that's like from the rock genre or the electro genre. It's it's just meant to stimulate your passions more than it's made to kind of uh, uplift the spirit. And I think children can kind of innately sense when music is happy in the deeper sense, so that it's moving fast, but there's also kind of a 
a joy of it in it, you know, and I think they like that. Mm-hmm. Want to pivot maybe to one of the songs on the album, the title track, uh, Holy Ghost Power. Could you give us a little intro to the song? Maybe maybe explain why it's Holy Ghost Power and not Holy Spirit Power. Well, probably because of the King James Bible. I mean, <laughs> Holy Ghost Power is definitely a more hillbilly kind of thing to say than Holy Spirit Power because the King James Version often uses that 17th century English. And that is, you know, a part of the cradle of American Christianity to, to kind of use King James language. Although it's a very Catholic song. So, I mean, it's a kind of throwback. I do love some of the lyrics. Uh, just read a couple. Um hundred channels of nothing on the TV at 10. It's like Diet Coke and Original Sin. Don't be sad. It's just the world gone mad. You thought it was gold, but it's made out of tin. Um, I, I love the just like picking up on these little details or these little moments of uh, Ashley doesn't have one right now, but normally has a Diet Coke in front of her. <laughs> not, I'm not saying it's sinful necessarily, but I mean, you guys are like picking up on everyday pieces of everyone's lives to kind of lead us to something deeper. But also the I mean, as you alluded to earlier, the music is sort of fun. You're moving along, you're you're grooving to it, but it is ultimately like lifting you and pointing you to something deeper within, I think. Yeah, well the character in that song is a little lost, uh, but he he gets found. Uh he can't escape, you know, the the Holy Spirit who descends upon him, a little bit like uh the character in um An Enduring Chill, which is a story by Flannery O'Connor. And there's overt references in that song to the book Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor and Everything That Rises Must Converge, the short story. So there's a, a lot of, you know, relishing of her lyrical symbolic imagery about kind of being assaulted by the grace of God and being converted. But it's in the midst of, you know, disillusionment or lostness and then the need to kind of marshal oneself in the spirit to find one's way. Um, and there's a little bit of humor. And, you know, look, if you grew up in Georgia in the 1970s, uh, you you were raised on Coke and then, you know, Diet Coke is a kind of disappointment. So there's, there's always a little autobiography mixed in there in, in you know, illusions. Oh, that's funny. Where did you grow up, by the way? I grew up in Georgia in the 1970s. Okay. <laughs> there's a, you also mentioned, uh, what is it, Brits Whiskey and Moon Pies, too? Those are Ever since I found out yeah. you were telling me lies, I've been living off of Grits, Whiskey and Moon Pies. Yeah. I have I have family who lives in Atlanta and they do they do evangelize Coke to the rest of us uh, Coke Coca Cola yes <laughs> um, we are gonna let listeners hear a, a a little bit of this song so here is a excerpt from Holy Ghost Power by the Hillbilly Thomas. From the day I found out you were telling me lies I've been living off of grits, whiskey and moon pies Trying to find my place, launching prayers into space And staring into heaven at a bread that's unleavened A hundred channels of nothing on the TV at ten It's like Diet Coke and original sin But don't be sad It's just a world gone mad You thought it was gold But it's made out of tin Now it's a zombie town There's a lot of undead 
politicians who try to hypnotize with the conviction in their eyes. When my heart was broke, I thought life was a joke. It was just at that time he removed the yoke. He makes a rich man fall. He makes a weak man strong. No more going wrong just to get along. I felt the force of the truth when they pierced his side. I saw the war eagle dive and I could not hide. Just when I faced the capital hour, that's when I found the Holy Ghost power. I did want to ask uh, your first album, which which I loved. It was uh, the I listened to albums on repeat when I'm whenever I'm doing a writing project. So that was one of them in, in 2018. Um, but you've you've moved from doing mostly covers to to original songs, and I'm wondering what what inspired that transition, and and what it, what has it been like as as a band to kind of come together in the project of songwriting? Yeah, well, I mean, there I think there is something you know Dominican about communicating and people thinking, you know, we could write a few of our own songs. I mean, it depends on how inspired we feel and how many of us feel so inspired because you have to have enough songs to fill an album. But as time's gone on and we've played together more, you know, you you feel like the music is not just something you can imitate or even re- represent in a beautiful way, somebody else's music, but it becomes a little bit of a the inspiration for you know, new creative en- endeavors. And and how many of you are, are there like when this? Well, there's like seven or eight of us, depending on who can be present. But basically there's eight people in the band. Well, and they say they say that a, a horse drawn by a committee is a camel. So I'm curious how you guys yeah, well, navigate writing well, a song. Altogether. Yeah, so I mean, basically people have to bring individuals have to bring songs. They have a kind of coherence and you share them. We often record them kind of the way we're talking here. We, you know, we've recorded it. We share it. Somebody gets the basic, people get the basic idea. And then we have to set them. Meaning, you know, you've got, you come with a kind of kernel, but then you have to build up around that a repertoire. You have to create harmonies. You have to have instrumentals, uh, solos, uh, figure out what your rhythm is. What's the bass? What's the accompanying music? And that's, you know, that's like a conversation. But in that, the song becomes the song and the band figures out what it's doing. And there's really part about the committee issue is there are really like two people, and I'm not one of them, in the band who have a, a better or stronger gift for uh, thinking about those those settings and like working with them is a great privilege for me because they have a, a I think a greater gift than I do of seeing the whole of uh, orchestrating the piece and of playing uh, technical music that accom- accompanies because you know part of the whole genre is you have some really technical solos which are just awesome. You mentioned a lot of the band members are on the younger side. Correct. Meaning, well, are they it's still a relative term? They're all younger than me. <laughs> I mean, they're, I don't think anybody's in formation now. I think that everybody. I think as of this summer, everybody's ordained a priest. But but it, but in the beginning, when when this is sort of getting off the ground, there are guys in formation. They were all in formation. They were all in formation except me. And then there was one who's sort of in between. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think when we recorded the first album, like two of us were priests, and the so rest I'm gonna, were in formation. I'm going to pose as a hypothetical superior provincial. Yeah. And I say, now Father Thomas. This is a. This seems like a big distraction from these guys' formation. This this bluegrass yeah. music. Your response is, yeah, it could be. I mean, I have more important <laughs> things to do. I'm the rector of a university, and I write a lot of theology books, and I teach theology, and I think it's more important. But um, if you do it for two weeks a year, uh, you know, put that in and and clear it with all the uh, necessary people, uh, and then you know, 
a hundred thousand people enjoy the music, it, it's a, also a kind of apostolate. Now it's true. You could decide to make it a way of life and like tour and write. Um, I don't feel like that's what God's called us to do. I don't, th- I certainly don't think it's, I certainly don't believe it's what he's called me to do. It does help people see the human side of the priesthood. And I think it helps them see the diversity of Catholic culture that is not just intellectual or religious or the escape from those things into like, I don't know what kind of mediocre or even dark entertainments that are all around us. You know, it's like the idea that we can humanize our culture and have joy and kind of peace and celebration in our daily culture. It's very important. So I don't think it's, I think it's reasonable that that's a part of our life to, to bring that message. All right. Another hypothetical. I'm the head of music ministry at my parish, and I'm a huge fan of the Hillbilly Thomas, and I want to bring this music into Mass. Yeah. Are you okay with that, or is it not appropriate for Mass? Um, you know, I'm not I, – I don't want to be like the, the liturgical traffic cop. I, I, you know, I'm, I only do dogmatic oh, theology. Oh, man. I, I, I want to be the liturgical <laughs> traffic cop. <laughs> uh, yeah, everybody does. But let me, let me just say, I think for the members of the band, that's a category error. I mean, the idea that everything musical that Catholic priests or Catholics are interested in has to be about liturgy is a very big mistake. And I know a lot of people who are more on the traditional side, they look at the province of St. Joseph and said, well, you, you know, you study Thomas Aquinas, that's all very good, but you got this folk band that's like priests from the 70s playing the guitar in mass. You know, haven't you got the memo? Young people aren't interested in that. And I would say, yeah, I mean, actually, I know that. We are not writing this music for the liturgy. I mean, that would just be a crazy idea. I mean, the liturgy is really meant to create, whether through silence or through a depth of musical initiation or a combination of the two, the encounter with God. And, you know, certain kinds of music are definitely going to draw attention primarily to the music itself. That can even happen with very high forms of polyphonic music where it might be there to introduce you to God, but it might just be there. So you're like thinking about how incredible that choir sounds and you're a little distracted. So I think those are really important questions. I don't think the kind of folk music that we write, no one in the band has ever dreamed that would have a liturgical application. And I think, you know, if we were really a little more uncandid about it, we'd say we, we would we would be unhappy with that idea. You know, we started playing this music at like parties after ordinations or, you know, um, sometimes on Saturday nights just to amuse ourselves, you know, just to play and have fun fraternally. So, you know, that's really more the origin. What you're saying about Everything that Catholics do, either music or artistically, we feel like it needs to fit into the liturgy is, is sort of a mistaken impulse. I think it's, it's such an important one because, you know, you you alluded to this trend of young people to to be more attracted to, to quote unquote, more traditional things. And I think part of that is because we have so few examples of Catholic culture that are not, that are not quote unquote, very religious, right? And so when we see things that are like, pure expressions of an otherness or uh, of capital C Catholicism, like bells and smells, habits, Gregorian chant, these things. We're drawn to them because we can't find that anywhere else in the culture. And, you know, whether that's good or bad, or I'm not trying to get into the ideology behind it, but the more we have examples, like I think the Hillbilly Thomas music, where we can point to and just say, oh yeah, this is just a part of being Catholic. I listen to this. I, I wear socks that have, you know, saints on them, or I, I wear a medal or any, anything that we can get and hold on to that just brings, I don't know, liturgical living is, is how other people describe it into our lives is super important. Yeah. There's a range. Like, so 
I might like the Lord of the Rings and there, I mean, I do personally, I know it's debated, you know, about the quality of the literature, but I like reading Lord of the Rings, but that's not going to be a substitute for reading Thomas Aquinas. Like I need sometimes to really think about God on a much deeper level uh, or to read a modern Catholic theologian like John Henry Newman. So it's a both and, but they're not the same. And I think it's the same thing with music in our lives. You know, um, when you're driving somewhere, you need the kind of music that's going to keep you awake and keep you tapping your foot more often. Um, and, you know, when you're in mass, you need another kind of music. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We do have one final question for you that we ask all of our guests. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, Dominican Jesuit, Jesuit or Dominican, <laughs> who would it be and why? I don't claim to have some, you know, vision from nowhere of what everyone else should think. I can just say uh, in the Dominican order, I think that there have been some some contemporary people who are, you know, whose causes for sanctity are in process that are, are really important. Just to take one example, I think Mary Joseph Lagrange, who founded the École Biblique in Jerusalem and is the father of modern Catholic biblical studies, who saw the harmony of the historical critical study of scripture and the deep theological and creedal confession of the divinity of Christ and the reality of the resurrection as deeply harmonious, you know, that you study the scriptures historically in a modern way and you believe the faith. Again, the album available wherever you stream music uh, is Holy Ghost Power out from the Hillbilly Thomas. Uh, Father Thomas Joseph, thanks so much for joining us and, and staying up late. I know it's late in Rome right now. Thanks so much. Great to be here. You can't gather grapes from a bramble bush Or pick a fig from thorns But what I like to be Oh, to be a good tree So I'm falling the rocks on the beaten path some sink into rich soil from a tiny seed. Grows a good tree like a cedar high and mustard wide. Where all of the birds of the air can It's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? Want to give a huge shout out to some new supporters on Patreon.com. Uh, Going to list them out right here. Huge thank you to Grandma Teresa. Appreciate that, Grandma. Uh, it's not my grandma, but she has identified herself as Grandma Teresa. Um, also to Jacqueline Osterbland and Alexander Art, as well as Matthew Eichner. All right. Thank you all so much. We can't do the show without your support, and we're so grateful. If you would like to support what we do here at Jesuitical, you can go to patreon.com slash americamedia, and we really do appreciate what you can give. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And this week, I was really struck by Pope Francis's general audience address. Uh, PSA, if you're not paying attention to these, every week Pope Francis gives gives a short address on, on a specific theme. So the previous one was on the elderly, and now we're in a series of catechesis on discernment, which, as Zach said at the top of the show, very, very uh, relevant to us and our listeners, I think. I can use 
all the advice I can get from Pope Francis when it comes to talking about our faith. In these in these Wednesday addresses, we actually got to go to one while we were in Rome with all of our pilgrims. So this, I don't know, these started to take on a new new flavor mm-hmm. for me because he really is like just talking to the church. Um, mm-hmm. I, it's one thing to read it on a page, but it's it's another thing to see him actually give this. And so that was a, a really grace-filled moment from the pilgrimage too. Definitely. So I want to just start with a, a quick quote from, from the audience today, uh, today being October 5th. Um, he says, Forgetfulness of God's presence in our life goes hand in hand with ignorance of ourselves, ignoring God and ignoring ourselves, ignorance of our personality and traits and our deepest desires. Um, And I think this stuck out to me because I think it's easy for me and maybe other Catholics to think of selflessness and giving away of self as kind of like an excuse not to look too deeply at ourselves um, because it can be hard to do that. And um, I think about it in in contrast with kind of the very public self-actualization, self-care culture that we have where self-care is seen as something you can be proud of and you can post on Instagram. But in, in reality, the work of really Gaining self-knowledge can be painful, really looking in the mirror. Um, And so I I felt challenged by the address to be paying attention to that. At another point, he says we need to stop and deactivate the autopilot. Um, And I feel like that's definitely something in my life where I can just get into a habit, not really think about my choices, what I'm doing. So, Well, I I appreciated this because, as you alluded to, like the sort of self-care, self-improvement vibes are are generally just that they're, they're they're aimed at improving and building up yourself which is good and important um but i think what francis is getting at here is actually like knowing yourself so you can know your limitations and and and, and your triggers and the things that um make you so uniquely human without really an eye towards necessarily like fixing them right away and i appreciated this because you know, prayer oftentimes is thought of as contemplating the great mystery that God is. And that is definitely part of prayer. But one one of the things that Francis is pointing out, and this is, I don't know, I don't know if it's unique to Ignatian spirituality, but this is certainly something that Ignatius picks up on, is that knowledge of ourselves is actually half the battle, right? And so, and it's oftentimes harder to know ourselves than it is to know the unknowableness of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another another part of it that really stuck out to me is he, he calls out those the recurrent thoughts that condition us often unconsciously. And I don't know, I, I feel like I have so many of th- this script that just runs through my head that I don't even I don't even notice anymore, whether it has to do with like body image or social anxiety or just all these things that like I'm just like, oh, I guess that's just the way I am. <laughs> I'm a computer and the program is <laughs> yeah, running. So I right? guess I better just adapt to, to what's there instead of instead of like looking at it, um, bringing it to God um, and, and seeing what seeing what he's trying to tell me there. I, I, I do want to just point out that he says living in the age of information technology, we know how important it is to know the password in order to get into the programs where our personal and valuable information is stored. Um, and he's trying doing a larger metaphor about like you have to know the password to your heart because God does, and so is the devil. But I backing up is Pope Francis really like? Does he have password <laughs> managers? Like, oh yeah, does, two two step authentication. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm just I'm not really sure that the Pope is logging into things all the time, right? Uh, yeah. So I'm just curious how where he got this info from. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's an apt metaphor. I do. So listeners, I would I'd really encourage you to read this address. We'll we'll include the link in in the show notes um, because it was hard to pick out quotes. There's there's a lot of great wisdom here from Pope Francis, and maybe it'll. Um, 
prompt you to do a little introspection. He provides a, a outline of how to do an examination of conscience at the very end of it. And I personally found it um, really helpful today. And now I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Cristobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcast. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loshert Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.